I want to invite my friend Mallory up. She is going to read uh, scripture today. If we could welcome her, that'd be amazing. Good morning. Okay, so this is Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the, his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together all with the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep in his love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Awesome. Thanks so much. So this morning I want to talk to you about packing. I want to talk to you about, you know, that moment when you are packing a lunch. This is just for the Vikings fans in the house today. So, you know, there's only so much room in here, right? Like, you got to make decisions about what's gonna go in here. And if, you know, you're a 42-year-old parent, you would maybe pack the lunch differently than you would if you're a seven-year-old kid, right? Like different things would go in there. I think maybe most kids maybe wouldn't choose to pack carrot sticks and celery sticks and those kinds of things. We might like see the space in here. It's like for the candy that I had from last Halloween. Let's just like bring that in the deal. And how many juice boxes can I fit in here? And, or I think there's the moment where you're packing the, the van or the trailer uh, for the family vacation, right? And there's only so much room in there. So you got to make choices about what goes in and actually what stays home during the family vacation. And, and if you packed it or if somebody else packed it, it would look different. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this group of Jesus followers. Like, they're, they're new in their faith. And Paul spends more time in the city of Ephesus than he does anywhere else. Like, he's there for like three years. Like, having conversations with them. Investing in them. And answering questions that they have about what it actually means to follow Jesus. Like, aside from just claiming him... What's it actually mean to live his way? And Paul's going to talk to them about like, hey, actually the decisions you make, actually like the stuff that goes in here, it's actually really important. Because it reveals something about what you value and about what you believe. And so it's sort of this opportunity that Paul asks like, hey, like, what, what do you need most? What do you need most? And I think we just like ask that question in the room today, like, like, what do you most need? Because Paul's going to pray a prayer over this Ephesian community that really is the stuff that they need, not the stuff that they think they need, not the stuff that they think should go in the lunchbox or in the back of the minivan. Not a perceived need, but an actual need. And so what do you need most today? I think some of us could say, like, what I need most today, I just need some relief. I need some relief from the stress that I'm under. Like, I need things just to, like, quiet down. Anybody need, like, a quiet space? Just to turn the volume down for a moment in life so that I could breathe, so that I could rest, so that I could think, 
so that I could feel like I used to feel. I think it's possible in the room today for some people to say, you know, what I need most is I just need another opportunity. I just need to take another swing. I just need to try again. I just need to have the sun come up another day so that I can go about it. And Paul's going to pray a prayer over the Ephesian community that's going to speak to those longings. And it begins in verse 14 that Mallory read for us this morning. And, you know, it's, this prayer is a part of this letter. You know, prayer is really interesting, isn't it? Like prayer reveals priorities. Right? Like what we deeply care about. Like what's really important to us. Like, that kind of comes out in what we pray about, isn't it? It's revealing of what's really true about us, what we're hoping for, what we would like to see happen. And Paul includes this prayer in this letter to this people that in the ancient world, like, they were called the way. Like, they weren't called Christians. Like, you know, like, the Christian only shows up two times in the whole Bible, and it's so interesting to me that we talk about being a Christian a lot, but the Bible doesn't talk about being a Christian a lot. The Bible talks about being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus. So what if it's not so much a set of beliefs, but what if it's a way of life? That's what Paul seems to say again and again. So the people who were not following Jesus, they referred to the people following Jesus as the way. But what happened to these Ephesian Christians is the people who were called the way began to lose their way in life. And I will just tell you that if you will do anything long enough, that will happen to you. That will happen to us. You do anything for any kind of length of time at all and you will lose your way. You will get tired. You will get discouraged. You will lose perspective. And so this prayer that Paul prays over the, this fly is driving me nuts up here. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> this prayer that Paul speaks over this Ephesian congregation, it's not just for them. Like, it's for us. It's like what we need most. I think a lot of us in the room would say, like, you know, I just, if I just had, like, more time. I just need more time. When actually, what we desperately need is to be more rooted in who we have been created to be in the first place. And so Paul prays this prayer over this community. Verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father. For like what reason? Like what, what's the reason that you're kneeling before the Father? If you go back to verse 13, what Richie talked about last week, which is, was awesome, by the way. If you didn't listen to it, please do. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. Why? Because of my sufferings, which are for you, your glory. So, hey, like, like I know I'm imprisoned. I know things aren't going well. But don't be discouraged because of what is happening within me. Because what's happening within me is supposed to produce something within you. And so Paul said, hey, don't allow my present suffering to produce discouragement in your life to such an extent that it dries up all of your faith in the one who has conquered death. And so Paul wants to talk to the Ephesian church about suffering, that God has a design in suffering. 
And his design in suffering is clarity and growth. That when we experience roadblocks, when we experience pain, when we go through hard seasons of life, God's purpose, God's design in that is that we would have greater clarity on who he is and on who he has made us to be and what he is calling us toward. I mean, most of you know, like, life is, is ultimately about vision, about your perspective, about what you see, how, how you think about the world around you. And we need more clarity on what really matters, because why? Because we lose our way. And that also leads to growth. But that is God's design in suffering, that we would have greater clarity and that we would grow, that we would be changed that we wouldn't celebrate the fact that we're the same as last year. But we would celebrate new ideas. And we would celebrate new steps. We'd celebrate new seasons. We'd celebrate new understandings. But if God has a design and a purpose in suffering, so does Satan. So Satan's design in suffering is discouragement and defeat. So his design for hardship, for pain, for difficulty, is that you would be discouraged Notice I didn't say feel discouraged. His design, you would be discouraged. It's like staying in bed. I'm not even going to try. Because I know how it's going to end up. I can tell you. And then defeat. I think defeat has to do with not just what you feel. But I think defeat has to do with how you think. Like having a mindset of defeat. God's design in suffering is clarity and growth. And the evil one's design in suffering is discouragement and defeat. And so Paul's writing to this church like, hey, like I know I'm in chains. Like I'm not preaching to you live because I got this Roman guard that I'm chained to. But I don't want that to produce discouragement in your life to such an extent that you're not believing that resurrection's possible, that new life is possible. And then he tells about his posture. Like when someone's talking to you, their posture is important. Like anybody ever talk to somebody and their posture is like this? Right? Or they have a nervous posture? Right? Posture is important. So Paul talks to us about his posture. If you're a Jew, you would not, you would pray standing up. You would not pray kneeling. And what Paul tells this this community, like, hey, like, I'm praying on my face for you. Like, I'm not standing to pray. Notice in the scriptures when J Jesus teaches, he stands up to teach. And that's why it's so significant that there's certain points in the gospels where he sits down. Because that's not the way that it would have been. It's not a, not a place of authority. Paul says, I'm getting on my face. Because I do not want you to walk in discouragement and walk in fear. And this posture that he has, getting on his face, I think tells us a couple things. First, it's, it's, it's him placing himself underneath the authority of the Spirit of God. That I'm not coming to you in prayer, like telling you, bossing you around. It's also him placing himself in a place of helplessness before the Father. Like without you, I have nothing. It's interesting, this is what Jesus has to say two at the very end of his life and one of the last conversations he has with his disciples. 
that I'm the vine, you're the branches. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. That's my design. But if you're not connected to the vine, you're not going to have clarity. You're not going to have growth. Like apart from me, you're not going to be able to move and breathe and live the way that I have designed. But then also I think Paul's posture places himself in a place of service to Jesus. It's so interesting in the upper room, one of these last conversations Jesus has with his disciples. Like he kneels down and he like washes their feet, taking this posture of a servant. So when Paul prays, he doesn't pray standing up, but he gets down on his face, submitting himself underneath the authority of the Spirit and under the helplessness before the Father and of service to Jesus. And so there's a question in the room today, like, are we doing that for anybody? Uh, like, are we laying before God in prayer for anybody right now? And who are those people? I would guess that most of the people that we are doing that for, their pictures are in our phone. And that's good, and that's amazing, and that's beautiful. But I think we should also be doing that for some people whose pictures don't happen to be in our phone, too. Because to be a person of the way, the way of Jesus, is to ask God to do his work in the world in such a way that earth begins to reflect heaven. And so I just wanted you to think just for a moment today, like, who are you praying for in that way? Like, who are you asking God to transform and change and renew and fill and bless and help them flourish? Paul says, I'm not kneeling before Caesar. I'm not kneeling before fear. I'm not kneeling before suffering. Like, I'm kneeling before the throne of Jesus. And then verse 16. I pray that out of the glorious riches, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that God would strengthen you with power. And we're not talking about like external strength, how much you can lift, but we're talking about like an internal strength, right? It's one thing to be strong on the outside, obviously. And it's another thing to be strong internally, like this inward strength. So what's inward strength all about? Inward strength is about self-control, it's about gentleness when you want to overpower somebody. Anybody in the house? Of course, no one's ever felt that. When you have an opportunity to be, to be powerful, to be right, to be impressive, to bury somebody, and instead you're gentle. There's this moment at the end of the life of Jesus, and he's on the cross, and he's dying. He's running out of breath, and people are making fun of him. Like, yeah, you raise people from the dead. Like, why don't you come down from the cross if you're really the son of God? And I imagine them laughing and looking at each other and feeling so right in the moment. And Jesus doesn't respond to them because his eyes are on the Father. 
So what they are speaking over his life does not impact what he has been called to do. Inner strength, I believe, also is resisting temptation, saying no when you want to say yes. Having inner strength is self-control and also battling temptation. I'll also tell you that it's also expressing gratitude. Like being able to say thank you when you are in the middle of grief. Like when you're in the middle of a dark place, when you're in a place of discouragement. Like it's like having a heart of praise even in that moment. And I don't know what you would say, but I would say the only way we're doing any of those things is if we have an inner strength that goes beyond us. Have you had a moment, a season, a time in your life when someone has asked, like, how did you make it through that? Like, how did you survive? (laughs) How did you survive 2020? How did you survive 1987? How did you survive 1996? There's like this inner strength. It didn't come from anybody else but from on high. So a question that I would have, what's the opposite of strength? Like if I asked the room today, like what would you say? Well, what's the opposite of strength? Somebody tell me what the opposite of strength is. Weakness. Weakness. Yeah, that's a good answer. Something I discovered in the scriptures this week that I'm so excited to share with you because that's what I would have said too. And the scriptures, the way that the scriptures answers this question, the opposite of strength, it's actually the opposite of strength is fear and discouragement. Joshua chapter 1. We find that Moses, like the servant of God, is dead. And so he's told, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So what if the opposite of, of strength is not weakness, but what if it's fear and discouragement? And it, it's not, I didn't notice that I did not say feeling discouragement, but being discouraged, living in a place of discouragement. And I just believe that Paul knows something. I think what Paul knows is that the greatest battle in our journey with Jesus will not be a person. Our greatest battle in our journey with Jesus will not be a problem that we have to solve. I believe our greatest battle in our journey with Jesus is the battle against fear and discouragement. And so it's why we need strength, hello. Because the battle that you and I will wage in our lifetime is a battle against fear. Fear about what's going to happen in the future. Fear about how we're being viewed, how we're being understood. Like if somebody's going to leave us, if something's going to change, if like we're not going to like measure up, we're not going to be good enough, and then discouragement to live in that place. And Paul tells these Ephesian Christians to be strong in the power that comes from on high. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. Notice he doesn't say that you would be strengthened with certainty or strengthened with knowledge or strengthened with ability. No, strengthened with power 
through, your, through his spirit in your inner being. And then verse 18, Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would experience the love of God. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. So you would have power together, not just with yourself, but with everybody, with all of the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So rooted, it's this like idea of like being anchored, right? That you'd be rooted and established in love. Established like setting a foundation, like when you build a house, you'd have some kind of firm foundation so that you would be rooted and established in love. And what I think is so interesting, what I thought about a lot this week, is that Paul is not talking to people who have not experienced the love of God. These are followers of the way. These are, he's writing to a church. And that tells me that there are some people in that community who have not stepped into an understanding and a posture of receiving that which God wants to give them. He's writing to Christians, wanting them so deeply to experience the love of God, and he's convinced that some of them have yet to grasp the love that God has for them. They've heard it, but they're not holding it. And Paul's heart is not that they would just hear, not that they would just see, but they would hold the love that God has for them. And I think it leads us to this question today, like, like, if you really knew that God loved you deeply and eternally, what would change? Like, if you really knew that God loved you personally and at a great cost to himself, and you could not be convinced otherwise by anyone or anything, like, what would be different? Like, if you knew that God loved you eternally and personally and sacrificially, like, what would be different? Like, well, what's on that list? What would change? I wrote down a couple of things. I wrote down that I wouldn't be so hard on myself. You don't have to raise your hand today. You can raise your heart hand if you want. But anybody in the house hard on themselves. What would change? If we would embrace this eternal, personal, sacrificial love that comes from the Father, that comes from on high, would that help us to be a little bit more self-compassionate? I also wrote down that opinions would be less powerful. Other people's opinions about me will be less powerful. I'm not gonna help cause you to raise your hand today. His heart hands are awesome for anonymity. But I wonder if there's somebody else in the house today who's wrestled with that. 
has struggled with what other people think about them, what other people's opinions are, and would the personal, sacrificial, strong love of Jesus change that in our lives? I also wrote down that I'd stop trying to earn and I'd be more likely to rest. If I could fully embrace this high and long and wide and high and deep of the love of Christ, I'd be more likely to take a breath and to rest in the presence of Jesus rather than trying to earn on the hamster wheel of faith. I also wrote down that I'd have greater peace. If I really knew that God loved me deeply and eternally and personally and at a great cost to himself. So today, I just want to ask the church what's on your list. You don't have to tell me yours. I told you mine, but you don't have to tell me yours. It's all good. I'm the one with the microphone. What would change? Paul's writing to a church. It's the followers of Jesus. And I think he knows they've not fully grasped the love of God because newsflash, they never will in life. It's the moment a, a young couple brings a baby home from the hospital. And, you know, it's like the size of a loaf of bread. It, like, fits from your wrist to your elbow. And you go through all of the process, all of the things, and making bottles and laying the baby down and picking the baby up. And, and the love that you have for that little human, they will never understand. They will never come to know what it is like to stand on the other side of the crib. Not a moment where they will understand that. Why? Because it's high and it's long and it's wide and it's deep. And so you'll say to that little human, like, I love you. I know. No, you don't. And I think Paul wants to tell the Ephesian church, you got no idea how much God loves you. And then verse 19. Invite the band up as we close today. Verse 19. It's a prayer to be filled with God's fullness. So I didn't think about what I was going to do with this now. <laughs> Paul wants them to be filled, verse 19. Filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. And so it just makes me think of this question like, what if God is extending far more than you are grasping? What if the posture of God is that he is extending to you far more than you can understand, far more than you can know? And it leads to this other question, I think. What's next for you to grasp? Like when you think about like where you are, when you think about where you sit in relation to who God is and his love for you, 
Because I, I, I know in this room today, a lot of you are saying like, yeah, I, I know that God loves me. Like, I know that I'm loved of God. I would just ask you then, why are you being so hard on yourself? There's people who would say like, I know that God loves me. Jesus loves me, yes, I know. For the Bible and my grandma told me so, right? I know that. Then I would just say to you then, why are the opinions of other people so powerful? Like I would say to you then, how come you don't have peace? And how come you spend so much of your day and your week and your life comparing yourself to other people? I think the answer to that is that we've got some growing to do in the love of God. We have some growing to do in receiving what God's extending to us. And so what's next for you to grasp? As you come to know this love of God, there's this writer, probably my favorite writer outside of the scripture writers. You can't really say that in church because you could get struck by lightning. So outside of the scriptures, my favorite writer, this guy named Brennan Manning. And I want to end with this today. And I pray that these words would just wash over you. Your Christian life and mine don't make any sense unless in the depth of our beings we believe that Jesus not only knows what hurts us, but knowing seeks us out whatever our poverty, whatever our pain. Do you know he seeks you out? Not that he just puts up with you. Not that he's just waiting for you to be better. But he seeks you out. His plea to his people is come now. Wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. And I'll love you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. Do you really believe this? With all of the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? Not the person next to you, not the church, not the world. But that he loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain. Without caution, without regret, without boundary, without limit. No matter what's gone down, he can't stop loving you. This is the Jesus of the Gospels.